Welcome back to my channel. Wendy Renee here. So excited to have you. Today we're talking to Spencer. And when I tell you Spencer has a story that I know for a fact you're going to relate to, mm, you're just going to have to see. Before we begin, thank you so much for liking, subscribing, and sharing. We just hit around 2,000 subscribers or so. It just proves that there is life and happiness and positivity and healing on the other side of the trauma from narcissistic abuse and high control religion. Be sure to follow us on TikTok where we have interesting conversations and also Instagram where I tend to overshare a little bit. So let's get right into this interview. Spencer Clarkson, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really an honor to have you on here. We've been talking on Instagram back and forth and your story is especially compelling. So for the audience sake, why don't you give us a little bit of a backstory and tell us what brought you here? I'm a born in, I guess I would have been a, a third generation because my grandparents wow. uh, were in the organization. However, I, I don't know how they got into it. I don't know that part of my family's history. I was born to parents who are very, very peamy. My dad was a ministerial servant for many years and he was appointed as an elder when I was like just a little kid. And my mom has pioneered quite a bit over the years. And they did a RBC together and all that kind of stuff. Growing up, we were raised to be perfect little peamy kids. I don't remember exactly what age I would have been when I was made a unbaptized publisher or on the school, but I know I was, it was right around six years old that I was on the school, which would put me in or put us in the late nineties at that point. Mm -hmm. So we were, we were still doing like uh, the little written intro and conclusion thing for your Bible reading. Some people on here might not even know what that was, you know? So I was, I was getting going from a young age, but we weren't, we weren't like the elder family that had like money. We were the other side of it. We grew up kind of more on the poor side. My parents were both and still are like very blue color. And that kind of, some of the issues from that kind of ties into my story later on too. We grew up in this small town, Northern Alberta, and three quarters of the congregation was related to me. So it was a pretty odd sort of way to grow up because not only are you in this shelter where you're the only kid in the school who's a witness because there wasn't very many kids in my hall, you're also like you're also related to almost everyone in the congregation. I was, you know, given comments and the whole nine yards when I was just a kid and never, we would never missed meetings. We were never allowed no matter how sick we were. And then once I got to be 13 years old is when I got baptized. So it's not quite as young as some, pe some people, but it's still young enough. Oh, my um, daughter is 11 and I cannot even imagine the next two years bringing her to baptism for the rest of her life. Like a decision that yeah. For the rest of her life. So yeah, that's very young. If when I look back at 13, I didn't know what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I was put on to doing microphone right away. And I was even used as an attendant at one of the assemblies when I was like 13 or 14, because I was able to ride my daddy's coattails. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I was I was already being used from a young age. And part of a big part of that was because my mom always sort of she may not have said it in so many words, but it was always this mentality of you have to take on as many privileges as possible because that proves how spiritual you are. Yes. It's not being a good person. It's not how you treat others. And this is why it's interesting. I was just talking to someone and I said to this person, You're just you're so good. And they said, I don't even really know what good means at this point, because being raised in the organization, good meant following all the rules to a T. 
And so it can be very confusing. Yeah. Exactly. That's a great point. And also with regards to my mom, not only did I have this kind of mentality ingrained into me, like starting when I was quite young, I had been like physically abused by her. Um, I remember, I'm not going to give a lot of detail, but I remember I would get beaten with a wooden spoon to the point where it would like break over my backside. And that was when I was like young enough that that shouldn't happen. Well, you you're never old enough that that should happen. And she, there was a couple times where she would like threaten foster care and different things like that. And it wasn't just me. Like I remember my brother and he's four years younger than me, getting pretty similar treatment too. And so I had this built-in obligation and fear, but it wasn't towards Jehovah. It was towards my mom specifically. And so when, when I got baptized or when I took on a lot of the different privileges and different things that I did from a young age. It wasn't because I had the desire to do it to please Jehovah. It was because I was, it was for one ingrained into me that it shows how spiritual you are. And for two, it was obligation and fear. So I was being used, commenting lots. I was on the school pretty regularly. And then we ended up moving when I was 14 and a half to central Alberta. And a large part of that was my family's financial situation. And at that point is when I started getting used even more so. I don't remember exactly when it would have been, but I know that my dad was a Kobe for a while. But even before he was a Kobe, he it didn't take that long for him to kind of get a good rep with the other elders in our hall that we were in. Once again, kind of riding my daddy's coattails, I was taking on lots of privileges, literature desk and I remember I, you know, because I was I would auxiliary pioneer during the CO month and stuff like that. Even and this I was still in, in school with all of this. There were times where I would go to the group and it was just sisters. So at like 14, 15, 16 years old, I'm the one who's taking the group. You're not kidding when you use the term used, you know, and when we're yeah. in the organization, we think that that's such a good thing, right? Oh, I'm being used. But really it's interesting how the flip-flop in terminology, like you were actually being used, meaning like abused. Well, I remember this is jumping quite a bit ahead, but I remember there was this one elder who told me, because I, I did eventually become a ministerial servant, and he said he was trying to make a joke, but it was very true. He was like, oh, ministerial servants are like the elder slaves. Mm -hmm. This was oh in one God. of those elder ministerial servant meetings with the CEO that he made that kind of joke, but it's, it's very true. And it starts before you're ever a servant or anything. They try to get you young, and if they see that you're taking on privileges, they're going to use you. That's Sounds just like the way you were, it works. You were groomed and you were a prime target for yeah. the narcissistic abuse that came from your mother and came from the organization is what it sounds like. I didn't have that much of a belief in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, my parents always said, we're trying to get me to study and stuff. It was just something that I couldn't get myself to really do. I didn't have an interest in it. Even, even through all my years in the organization and as a ministerial servant, I still have never read the whole Bible cover to cover. Me neither. Because <laughs> you know what? Especially as a man, you're just, so, you're, you're given so much busy work. So you're at this meeting for field service and you're taking the lead as a young, new teenager. I didn't know really what I was doing per se. I had mm -hmm. to kind of guess my way through because it's not like I had been given any training or any direction or anything. And because I wasn't like the assistant for the group or anything, because I was a kid still, you know, it's not like they'd call me and say, oh, hey, I'm not going to be at the group. It was nerve wracking. You go there 930 or whatever. And it's like, oh, well, I guess I have to take the group now. And what was really odd was over the years that I lived where I was living at that time, there was a lot of times where the 
guy taking the group just wouldn't show up. So even for when I was an assistant in the groups, I would never get notification ever. So for a good chunk of time, I would go to the service groups prepared to take it because I was like, well, it's probably going to happen anyway. And so that started when I was a teenager. I was on the literature desk as well. I was on microphones. I was doing lots of talks. So they kept me busy. Now, in the meantime as well, another thing in regards to my mom, because eventually, uh, you know, I got old enough and big enough that she couldn't really get away get away with beating me anymore. She actually ended up starting to s- steal money from me. Like I started working when I was 12 at the grocery store to help pay for my family's bills to an extent. There were so many times from that time on where I would go to see if I had any money and oh, my mom cleared out my account again. And that happened a lot over the years to the point where there, there was literally nothing. I remember having, like I needed to buy some some new shoes. I thought I had enough money in my account, but it turned out that I didn't. It seems like there's lots of little things that happened with that, but it's a major issue when it comes down. It is to a major it. issue. I'm I'm baffled. I'm so sorry you went through this, to be honest. It's horrible. Yeah. It's, it was not fun. <laughs> and she was a baptized witness. Yep. How baptized witness, elder's wife, pioneered mm-hmm. for many years over wow. the years. Very narcissistic. Mm-hmm. When I was kind of in my last year of high school, which I finished all my coursework at like 16, I'd started pioneering and I regular pioneered for one year, which was a goal that my mom had for me, not the goal that I wanted to do. The only reason I stuck with it was because the school let me use that for work experience, for, for credits, for high school. But even during that time, I found myself, I'd always struggled with believing things, but even at that time, I found myself, because I was in the ministry all the time, I found myself having a lot of doubts. Looking back on things after I'd woken up, I came to realize that I actually had had like an agnostic point of view to some extent or another at that time. Either way, I continued you know, taking on these privileges. And then I got to 19. And at 19, I was appointed as a ministerial servant and used even more. <laughs> Still young. Still young young yeah wow 19 ministerial servant started getting taken on shepherding visits right away so i'm going to people's houses at 19 20 years old to try and help them with the various problems that they had and it's like i shouldn't be doing this because i don't know what i'm doing like i don't know what i'm talking about here it's so humble of you to admit that too you don't think about that when you're on the publisher side You don't think about what the leader is going through on the side of the ministerial servant. You don't think about that, but. Thank you. It's, uh, I kind of have come to the realization that with having been a servant, as opposed to an elder, I feel like that kind of gives a different perspective to, to the experiences that are on YouTube, because I haven't found a lot personally that are from other ministerial servants and the way that you get used as a ministerial servant or at least the way I was used as a ministerial servant was crazy. The amount of work that I had to do all the time. So for a short while as a servant, I was in charge of the literature desk, basically. And then eventually I got moved over to sound department and I took over on that. From the time that I was 16 to 21, I think, I was on RBC as well. So I was kept very busy. They, I got going on doing lots, lots of public talks. I kind of lost track after a while of how many 
outlines I actually ended up having. I remember there was this one stretch, and this was after I was married, where I was giving a public talk every month for five or six months in a row. And it was always a new outline. So I literally would have like two or three weeks to put this thing together. I also was in a sign language group for a year, again, used very heavily there. What I came to realize too, is that I always had this struggle of believing whether I did or didn't. And I had doubt. I kind of ended up fooling myself into thinking that if I take on enough privileges, then that'll mean something to Jehovah and I'll be okay. So, I mean, I, on one hand, I hated all the work that I was doing and I hate, I always, I've always hated field service. And I would, I remember I would go, like I would get sent off on my own a lot. And I remember I'd go and I'd pretend to knock the door or I'd pretend to ring the doorbell. Yeah. You do that, that phantom doorbell ring. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I didn't want to bother anyone. I didn't yeah. want to be yeah. in service. I just wanted to go back for coffee. <laughs> yeah. In total, I was a witness for 28 years and I was a servant for a ministerial servant for about nine years, give or take a little bit. And in that time, like I ended up doing a lot of different things, um, privileges. And I was, there was a point where I was on track to becoming an elder too. It really shows, like I said earlier, you really are the elder slaves. I had so much of my free time taken. I mean, as a publisher, just a regular publisher, you have a lot of time taken up as it is because you're expected to do family worship and study and go to these meetings two or three times a week and so forth. While now providing financially and materially and emotionally yeah. for your wife and children as well. Of course, it's an impossible list of tasks. Question for you, though. You hear a lot of appointed men who actually are currently PIMO. What is your viewpoint on Holy Spirit appoints men? If you truly didn't believe it was the truth, but you were just kind of ticking off boxes and hoping that's what it sounds like, that you were like hoping that something would touch your heart. Um, what is your belief now about Holy Spirit appointing these men if you were one of them and actually didn't believe it? I do not think that there was any Holy Spirit involved at all with that. The thing that really proved that to me was, for one thing, I, I have some stories about certain elders and so on who I don't think should have been elders. The qualifications are not quite there. The other part of it that really proved it to me was that for a period of time there, I guess it would have started just shortly before COVID or maybe right around when it was starting, we'd ended up moving to this other area because in Southern Alberta because I, I had been kind of out of work and struggling just with the way the, the economy had been. And the elders there absolutely had a prejudice of some kind against me because they read to me what was in my letter of recommendation from the previous congregation. And they said, yes, we recommend that you continue, you know, He's a good guy and all that stuff. These elders decided that they wanted to put me on pause is how they called it. So on paper, I was still a ministerial servant, but I wasn't allowed to do anything. There was like two months in our previous congregation where for whatever reason, even though we put our time in, it wasn't submitted. So I looked like I was inactive for two months, My goodness. even though I wasn't. And so they put me on pause, so to speak, as a servant. Now that it ticked me off because... The way that they just the way that they talked to me and treated me. So when we ended up moving again, I had this chip on my shoulder. Oh, I gotta prove prove them wrong. I I got reappointed in our new congregation for all the wrong reasons. It was because I was trying to prove myself to these elders. Like, oh, screw you! I can give them the middle finger. I can get a be a servant again. I even doubt if if Jehovah is 
is real, if he was real and he reads hearts and he knows heart conditions, he would know exactly why I was trying to get reappointed or fully appointed again. So if Holy Spirit is going to be directing this, then I shouldn't have gotten reappointed, right? Because it was for the wrong reasons. And then you add that on to some of these other elders or servants that I've known over the years that should not have been elders or servants. I really don't think that Holy Spirit is involved in any of this. And I have seen a lot of favoritism too. In that central Alberta congregation, I remember there was this other guy who was about a year older than me, I think, and his uncle was on the body of elders as well. He was the favorite. That that guy was the favorite. So he was... <laughs> you say it like... There's one in every hall (laughs) and there is. (laughs) Yeah. Part of the reason I ended up eventually leaving the literature desk was because I got kicked out of it essentially by that elder who wanted his nephew to run things. And he didn't have any training at all on literature desk. He had never done it. I mean, that's just one small example of the favoritism that I've seen over the years too. Just to get into a couple stories, I guess, with that too, there was this other elder couple that I, that. I knew back in central Alberta who were very full of themselves. This, like that elder would often say, oh, if, if you're not pioneering, then there's no point on you even being a witness. He even yeah. made a comment at a meeting saying not quite those words, but that was what he was saying. I was dating my now wife at that time and I ended up house sitting for this guy. So he was building houses and and flipping them. That was his income. And he was an elder and a pioneer and all this. And so they, him and his wife ended up getting this call to go to the Philippines for some big building project out there. So they were going to like drop everything and go. Well, they had this house that was half renovated, half gutted. Parts of it had no insulation. And this is like the middle of Canadian winter. And I have to go house sit. And it's not just house sitting. I'm paying them. I'm paying them to to live there. $300 a month. My brother was also there. He also had to pay $300 a month. And the furnace didn't work. So we're living in this freezing house. It's minus 30 out on average where we were in in Celsius. No no furnace. Parts of those had no insulation because it's half gutted. And yet we still have to pay them for the privilege of staying there. (laughs) Meanwhile, they're over in the Philippines doing good work. Yeah. And then when they come back, the elder, the elder body took the opportunity to use this local needs part to, to have this big show of all this great work that they did in the Philippines. But to make things even worse yet, I'd moved out of there in the spring into a basement suite. And then I had gotten married right after we got back from our honeymoon. The next meeting, they approached me and they were like, oh, you still owe us $300 for this one month that you were there. We know that family usually gives money as gifts to the bride and groom. So you should just pay us out of that. I did not pay them out of that money. Good for you. Oh, it made, it made me so livid. Mm -hmm. I had, like, I didn't say like, it was, it was at the kingdom hall too. So I didn't say anything. I just turned around and walked away because I knew if I said something, it'd be something stupid. The right thing in the wrong place. Yeah. Yeah. There's been, you know, a a number of different examples of, of people like that, where it's like, mm-hmm. if Holy Spirit was actually appointing or directing these people, you'd think that they would act differently than the way that they do. Again, in regards to the way that I was used as a servant, I ended up starting to get used a lot at the attendant department um, for conventions. Mm-hmm. And for a good stretch of time, we were having the conventions in in the place that we were in or the, the city that we were living in, it basically it would be a certain part of the circuit would come one weekend and then the next weekend, another part of the circuit would come. Well, 
during our turn, I was being used so much that I wouldn't get anything out of it. Not that I would normally get much out of it anyway, but I would end up going to both. I would go to both weekends because the one, I was used so much as an attendant, aka uh, security guard, you know, because you're watching for lost kids or you're, you know, sitting um, on one of the chairs with your radio or, or who knows what. And it was, yeah, I was just used a ton that way. And even like early morning shifts. I remember this one time I had to be at the convention site for like 6.30 to man this one door with another guy. We actually ended up meeting David Splane that way because he was the, the guest speaker or whatever. Talk about a cold feeling kind of guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would, I was already at the convention site at like 6.30 or 7 o'clock to do this manning the door thing i would go and sit down for like an hour once the program started and oh now i gotta go to my next assignment leaving my wife there on her own it's not that i wanted to leave my wife there on her own even when we were dating i always felt like i was really torn or or rather being pulled in two different ways because it's like on one hand i want to spend time with my wife i want to give her attention well, you're newly at this it. point right like you're 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 kind of newly married to her at this point so yeah that would make sense yes mm -hmm. yeah one of my goals when i was like 16 and this was my goals not the goals my mom wanted to have for me mm -hmm. was to be married i always wanted to be married sweet so when i did get married I wanted to spend my time with my wife but the i was audacity. always i mean imagine <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I was always so heavily used and made to right. feel like I can't say no or else I'm a bad person. Of course. And then they, and so, that trickles into your spirituality and the amount of rules that you follow and the amount of jobs that you take on. And also from a woman's perspective, too, there's also a similar inner struggle of I want to be with him. I want to spend time with him, but I also want to support him in his kingdom interests. What do I do? Because as a wife, you don't want to seem selfish. You don't want to seem like you're not also spiritually strong. So it sounds like both of you were just kind of sitting in this weird silence of what do we do? This doesn't feel right. Does that sound accurate? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it was during our, our whole time in the organization, it just felt like this really strange push and pull. There were times where, you know, be a Saturday I'd worked like it, like I was on like a big job, for example, I'm I'm a drywaller by trade. So I worked very hard physically, you know, so I'm on like a big job or something. Saturday rolls around. The last thing I want to do is go in service, possibly have to take the group last minute, you know, not even really spend time with my wife because we're in service. But the, but the odd time we'd take that time anyways. And the way that you would end up feeling guilted from that was insane. Even my mom would text me and be like, oh, why weren't you in service today? Like, where were you guys? Oh, we missed you. <laughs> but it's, it's like, always the I'm, we. I'm, it's always the we missed you. No, yeah. you're asking where I was. <laughs> that, that's but it's like if I don't do yeah. that once in a while, I ha I don't have much time to spend with my wife. Because mm -hmm. like I already like I have to work all day in a job that takes a lot from me physically, so I'm, I'm tired when I get home. Now we have you know the whole JW schedule added on to it, so it's like where's the time? Where's the time to spend with your family, right? Did it feel like the, the the natural desire to want to be with your wife felt selfish to you? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how that's implanted, right? It's installed in us to do anything that any form of joy that doesn't involve the organization is it makes us selfish people. Yep. That's right. 
And actually on that note, I'll just expand on that a little bit. Sure. Mm -hmm. Like I've got a couple of different hobbies, I guess you could say. One of them has always been like working out. I like to go to the gym and I was shamed. I was shamed for going to the gym, spending time at the gym. Oh, you should be. I was told to take my Bible to the gym and read between sets. (laughs) Can you imagine imagine being the one with the Bible on the treadmill? Can you imagine? (laughs) Yeah. It's just crazy. Even even when it comes to music, mm-hmm. I, I honestly felt like I had to hide some of the music that I liked because mm-hmm. other people wouldn't agree with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially out um, in service. That you know that yeah. if you're not if you're not playing kingdom songs out in service, there's something wrong with you. We yeah, we know that's right. right. Of course. Oh god. Like there's this one, <laughs> there's this one guy that I knew who was kind of cool because he would uh-huh. like Partway through the morning, he would turn on the country station. So I love country music. That's one of the, yeah. one of my favorite types of music. Oh, me so too. It, was, it yeah. was awesome when he would do that because uh-huh. it's like, oh, no more of the stupid cart song. <laughs> so from the start of my marriage, as I was saying, like we had this weird push and pull type thing with the organization with our time. So we end up getting pregnant. Uh-huh. We move to another city again kind of the work thing it was i i had a a stretch of years there where the economy and and just the way things were running caused me to get laid off a few times so we moved to this other city eventually well i i I get on to the ministerial servant elder body right away i'm being used now when we first moved there the congregation was that we were put in was like 40 40 publishers on average would, would attend so it was nice and small which was great for for my wife and I, because neither of us are big city people. And it's like, if we're living in the big city and now we got a giant congregation, that would have been like a lot to deal with at once for us. So fortunately it was small. Eventually our son was, was born. I was already being used quite a bit by the elder body, but it seemed like as soon as my son was born, I was used more. And on top of that too, I ended up actually getting sick from being in the hospital because we were in the hospital for about a week total. My son had to be in the NICU for four or five days. And I, along the way somewhere, I picked up some kind of parasite that made me sick for like three months. Like I'm the kind of guy who go to work with a flu. That's, that's a big mentality in construction around here, at least in general. Not oh, during yeah. COVID though. That's just the way I was raised. I was raised, you go to work no matter what. But I was with this parasite thing. I was so sick. I, I had to skip out on quite a bit of work but I couldn't really get away with that for meetings too much if I tried to there was the guilt thing it was hard to get out of parts and like I said they were using me more all of a sudden or that's what it seemed like once my son was born so I've got a newborn son I'm sick as a dog for like three months to the point where I there was a period of time where I thought I was going to die or something and doctors couldn't find anything of course and I'm being used even more at the congregation so my first three months with my son, I hardly saw him. It took a while after we kind of got through that to actually build a relationship with him because in a way it was kind of like I was a stranger to him, but even though I wasn't, you know, really sucked. I won't yeah, be able this to get that time Yeah, on your mental health. And I'm sure it may have taken, I mean, your wife being a new mom, I'm sure that's also being postpartum. Postpartum depression can happen to both people, by the way. Well, we were there and I I don't remember exactly what the timeline would be here, but I think my son was probably six months old, maybe when this happened. 
but there's the the merger thing in our city. So our congregation, it goes from 40 people to 200 and in a hall that was not meant for 200 people. And you're already stretched to your limit as someone who's taking the lead. Now, my wife has, she has anxiety issues and like panic attack type stuff. And part of that has to do with, with people. So we really started struggling in, in this hall. We would try to make it to all the meetings that we could. Sometimes I would just go by myself because I had a park that I couldn't get out of. There were times where we would be on our way and she was, she was starting to have a, a panic attack and struggling and she's a new mom on top of it. So it's like, okay, we're just turning around and going home. We asked three or four times for shepherding visits to, cause we're trying to get something figured out here. No help, nothing happened. And it was getting to a point where we were like desperate to leave the city. It was just getting to be too hard doing construction in the big city like that in Alberta. It's kind of, it's almost a joke. The kind of commutes that end up happening in that city like if there's an accident there's like three hours gone if you're at an office job where you're going to the same place every day okay you can kind of have a bit of a routine but when you're in construction and you're all over the damn city you know the commute is is going to be crazy so i already have so much time of my day taken up just from work and we're starting to struggle financially because the big city is expensive and we're a new family with our son and we're i'm still being used a lot now the merger with all of that situation and i'm still i'm on track to being an elder there not that i wanted to be but that's what they were like my dad because my dad ended up moving to that city as well and he was he would tell me what was being said in regards to to me at the elders meeting about how they're talking about making me an elder i don't want to add this to my situation because it's already plenty hard to an extent when you're when it's in your local congregation at least the higher up you go, the more people that you're serving and the more work you have to do. Ministerial servants are used and abused already. If I was made elder and I'd be a young elder, a new elder, I know that whatever little bit of time that I had already had left would have been sucked away anyway. So we got to this point where we were like desperate to get out of the city. In total, we were only there for 11 months, but it was 11 months of hell. So eventually we we did end up moving and this whole time no one came to help. The only help that we received at all was when we were in the hospital with my son, there was a couple of people who would check on our cats. There may have been some meals made for us. I don't really remember exactly. That's kind of as far as it went was possibly meals and we had asked for help multiple times and we never got anything. Did it ever occur to you guys that maybe because you're not getting the help that you need and maybe you're not doing enough despite everything you were already doing? Yeah, that's the thing with the organization is that you're made to feel like you're never doing enough, that you're not enough. And that's a very screwed up kind of mentality to be in because it's like if we think about my situation, which isn't unique, there's a lot of people who've had really hard situations like that. What more can you do? Where's the time to prove yourself even more? You know, like there is no time. It sound like a loving God. This is where so many people leave the organization and they have no belief at all. A loving God would not behave like this. It wouldn't treat his believers like this. Yeah, exactly. There's this one statistic that I saw. I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it's in regards to how many children end up passing away each day. And it's a very mind-boggling number. When you look at that, how is it that this God is all loving if he's letting this many kids die every day? Not even every day. I think the statistic went down to every minute. 
And, and not only that, but if he's so focused on whether or not you're performing your duties as a ministerial servant, but ignoring children who are dying every minute of the day, who wants to worship a God like that then? Right. You know exactly. what I mean? Like he'd be so concerned with the merger of a congregation, but ignoring the greater problems of the world. When you and your wife were going through this, a lot of the mentality, at least for me and other people that I speak to, is like the worse off you are, the more mentally in pain you are, the poorer you are, the more physical pain you're in. That means you must be doing spiritually well, right? <laughs> like they they yeah. perpetuate this toxic cycle of negativity and not being happy. Like happy and joy means not spiritually strong. Poor and depressed and sad, you must be doing something right. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. The amount of people that have depression in the organization mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. it's mind-boggling. I remember some elders saying, Oh, everyone's gonna have depression. That's just the way it is. It's like <laughs> that's not the way it should be. No. It's not, not if you serve the happy God, it doesn't make any sense. It, there's definitely this whole, oh, we got a struggle thing going on. Not even allowed to just simply be comfortable, right? It's not right. that you have to go and chase wealth or anything, right. right? but just to simply be comfortable, have a, you know, have a decent wage and, you know, not have to worry about bills that much. Even like that is like taboo. Well, and I, then it falls into the black and white thinking. So you're impoverished and spiritual or you're materialistic. Like being comfortable doesn't exist. You are either impoverished or you're wealthy materialistic. And, yeah. and it's the black and white thinking, us versus them, for sure. What I've noticed, at least with, with Alberta kind of in general, is right. that it's either you have the side that has that has money and quite a bit of it. You know, these rich elders with their giant houses and their four Cadillacs and that is a guy that I know. Or there's the poor side. There's no middle ground. You're not allowed to be comfortable. You're only allowed to either be rich or poor. That was what New Jersey was like also where I was growing up. It really was one or the other too. And the it seemed that the richer they were, the more respected they were in the congregation, the more fearful that people were of the rich people. And it didn't make any sense. Even in my, my hometown, when I was a kid, the elder body was kind of ran by this one family specifically. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were a bunch of rich farmers. <laughs> right. They had, they had a ton, like a shit ton of land. Mm-hmm. Sorry for swearing. Um, no, you're in good company. Believe me. <laughs> they had, but they had a lot of land and they were kind of, in a sense, they were kind of like, they all kind of worked together. Eight, like fleshly, something like eight fleshly brothers. And they all had land and they're this rich farm family fear or the respect or whatever you want to call it that everyone else had in regards right, to them. Right. Yeah. And we were the poor family and you know, always looked down on always. Oh man, us too. The richer you were, the more I, I, and I can't for the life of me just look at it more as like, well, that just means that they have more power. People see money as power, whether you're in the organization or not. That's just kind of how the world spins sadly. Yeah. And those yeah. people, always have a lot of arrogance along with it too. Oh yeah. This was a story from my mom. The one thing about her is that when someone did something that she thought was wrong, she would speak out about it. Right. Which can be good and bad, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The one guy from this family, he was one of the kids of this family, was on literature desk. And my mom goes to ask for a book. And this shows the arrogance of the of this family, which is common to rich witnesses. He was like, oh, are you actually going to read it? Are you actually going to study it? So when it came to waking up, essentially it kind of started earlier on in the summer, I guess, to an extent, because we were at a point where we needed 
something to change, but we weren't sure what it was. We ended up accumulating a lot of things in our home and, you know, work was just an odd situation. And so we started trying to look for different solutions to make things better and easier. And of course we'd pray about it. The most peamy that I was, was through our marriage. I would hardly pray before I ever got married. Hardly pray. Didn't have much of a relationship with Jehovah. Not that I had much of a relationship with him after either, but you know, it was only when I was married that I actually started praying regularly. So we were trying to figure out these solutions. We'd pray about it, but even to the point of like, maybe we should sell a whole bunch of stuff and get ourselves a holiday trailer and see if we can downsize that much and see if, if things get better. But every time we tried to figure out a solution and we'd pray about it, it would all fall apart. It would all crumble. And so that really messes with your head after a while. And with being the head of the house, I was the one who was praying all the time about it. Because it was a situation like we really need something to change. So it's on your mind all the time. Well, throughout the summer, as it progressed, I found myself getting angrier and angrier in my prayers. To the point where in my prayer, I would do a silent prayer, but in my mind, like I'm literally like screaming at Jehovah to give us something here because everything is fall, every solution is falling apart here. And often you're, you're this, this, especially this part, don't think that anyone in the audience isn't doing the exact same thing because I hear this often. And so shortly before I did wake up, I found myself having this thought come into my mind of, of not wanting to do this anymore. But I didn't know what this was because it was coming out of my depression issues. And so I was trying to take a step back and look at at things objectively. It's like, okay, it's not a suicidal thought. It's not any kind of a self-harming thought. So what is this? And then one night when I actually was looked at the Bible, I saw this set of scriptures in Deuteronomy that really caught me off guard. I'm not exactly sure where in Deuteronomy it was. It might've been chapter 28. But it was talking about how Jehovah would cause his pe- the, this certain group of people to be in such a state of suffering that they would eat their own children. When I, it caught me off guard, it surprised me. So when I went to try and find research on it, the only thing that I could find was references to other scriptures that said very similar things. Even getting this graphic is talking about a woman eating her, her newborn and her, her afterbirth, as the Bible called it. Pretty, really graphic stuff. How would a God of love cause such a state of suffering that these people would be caused to do such a horrible thing? That makes zero sense. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I can't find any other publications that talk about these verses, there's something wrong. Well, through the summer, my old doubts and everything else were already coming back up again. Put them out of your mind because that's what you're supposed to do. But through all the stuff we were dealing with, they were coming back. And then I see these verses and I need to start looking into some stuff here because this isn't right. And I ended up going down the rabbit hole. Oddly enough, I'd already known about the XJW forum on Reddit. Through my depression and everything that I was dealing with in the summer, I stumbled upon it somehow. So I started looking on there because I wasn't exactly sure where to start because I was like, I know I need to look for something here because this is not right. So I ended up on there and I saw references to, you know, old publications, even including talking like where the ones where it talked about how uh this fellowshipping is wrong and then five years later they're like oh yeah we're gonna do this now right exactly so you're still a servant at this point then when you were in the wake-up process right yes mm-hmm. so i was i was still a ministerial servant at that point and i was waking up i literally did an all-nighter of looking on reddit and looking it into old publications and looking at all kinds of different things pulled an all-nighter i 
I was on YouTube, came across the ARC, and mm-hmm. by morning time, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is what that thought was of not being able to do this anymore. And I continued doing research and looking into things. I came across Lloyd Evans. Oddly enough, he wasn't one of the first ones on YouTube I came across. The very first video on YouTube that I saw was a, was a XJW story, uh, Fallen Tower. Oh yeah, he's great. Yeah. That story um, resonates with so many people. Yeah. And then I, at one point I ended up coming across your videos and contacting you on Instagram. I continued to research, binge watched Lloyd Evans for a while there. We all and there did. were times where I was, <laughs> there was many times where I was up all night long yep. watching all this stuff. Cause it was like everything I had grown up with, like all my doubts and everything were being proved right for one, but this whole system that I grew up with was being destroyed and broken down here. This isn't in, in, insane and incredible at the same time. For about two weeks or maybe one week, because it was still on the early side in August, I had stepped down as a ministerial servant. Now I should mention too that the last meeting that I was at was somewhere between the middle and end of July, because throughout the summer I was becoming a lot more irregular at the meetings. So my last meeting would have been in the middle or end of July somewhere. And I had already uh, I'd already had been not doing very good in service. I was counting time but I wasn't actually in service. And that was like for most of the summer, I would say. I would call into the group and then as soon as it was over, I'd hang up and I wouldn't do anything. But I still made excuses to count time so I wouldn't get in trouble. Of course, we all did that. Uh So I stepped down as a servant and I'd already kind of not been at the meetings, but now it was more noticed to people because, oh, this servant has stepped down and, oh, hey, he's not at any of the Zoom meetings. What I was trying to do was to just kind of be inactive and just leave quietly and peacefully and all that kind of stuff. Right. But that was not allowed. (laughs) Of course not, especially as a man with position in the congregation. Yeah. Yeah. I keep hearing this too. It's really hard to fade when you're known especially known your family lineage too, your dad, like everybody kind of knew you. It's almost like they want to make an example out of the people who did so well, who yeah. were the leaders. They want to make examples out of you. You can't just fade. Well, that's exactly how it felt was making an example of me. And cause like wow. I did have a reputation, you know, like at, at least in certain parts of Alberta, mm-hmm. I was quite well known. And it took you years to build that good reputation too. And, and it's amazing how they can just knock it down in one swoop of yeah. negativity and gossip. I was getting harassed to, to say the least. I would have certain members texting me, trying to ask what was going on. Oh, are you in a different congregation now? There's three congregations here. You'll, you could figure that out very easily if I lied to you, you know? <laughs> right. Right. But most of the time I wouldn't respond, but the odd time like, no, I'm not in a different congregation. And then it's like, oh, come back to Jehovah, come back to Jehovah and all this begging and guilt tripping. There were elders who definitely acted inappropriately. There was this one who showed up on my doorstep. I was fortunately I was out. I was not I was doing errands, but he showed up on our doorstep. He was knocking on the door and he would have he would have been there for a while because he ended up texting me saying, Oh, I'm not leaving your house until you answer the door. Yeah. And so it was like, well, we're not here. So go away. <laughs> oh, you know, um, get off yeah. my doorstep. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe in a Floridian. Well, that's that's kind of what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then he takes it a step further and it's like, he wants us, yeah. he's like begging us and trying to get us and coerce us one way or another. 
oh, you have to meet me for a lunch. You have to meet me for, for supper at my house. You know, I have to talk to you about what's going on. I was able to talk him into just going for a coffee at Starbucks. So that was out in the open. A few days after that, I was like, nope, not doing that. I just don't feel because it was still I was still coerced into agreeing to it. And so I canceled it. And he had the audacity to say, oh, my friend, my friend, that's your choice. You didn't give me a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also had this one guy. The unfortunate thing is that I, the neighborhood I live in is like Witness Central. There's like seven or eight different witness couples that live all around us here within, a, within like two or three blocks. A cult within a cult. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was this one fella. He took advantage of the fact that I, I do try to listen to people when they sort of been a therapist of sorts or a sounding board, I guess, is a better way of putting it to people. They'd go off and tell me all kinds of issues that I don't need or want to know about, but they do it anyways. And this this other guy was the same way. He was talking about all kinds of issues he had with his wife and his kids and this, that, and the other. And before I had woken up and all this kind of stuff, he would just randomly show up at my house to talk about stuff. And it wouldn't be like a five-minute conversation. He would have me outside talking for like an hour and a half or two hours sometimes. I just got home from work. I want to be with my family. And now you are you try and end it. And he goes off on this other topic. So you can't end it. So this guy, he ended up in this process. I had been working for witnesses secularly. And I woke up and I, I had been already been wanting to get a different job anyways, because the situation was not good uh, at the previous one. I woke up and it's like, okay, now I definitely need to get a different job for many, many reasons, not not just the, the whole witness thing. And so I got that job. I didn't tell any witnesses about it. I was woken up. It's none of their business. This guy somehow finds out where I was working. My assumption is that, like I had a couple of ladders in my van that says the company name on it. My assumption is that he walked by and looked through my van window and saw, oh, this is the company. The stalking behavior is yeah. pretty terrible. I I definitely did not respond to his messages anymore because he was messaging me at least three times a week. And he was even, he, he literally told me that he was talking about me to other witnesses trying to figure out what was going on. So I I go to do this job in this uh, seniors condo. And as I'm walking in and I'm on the job, I have tools in my hands. I'm, it's very clear that I'm there to work. As I'm walking in, of course, I walk into a sister and she proceeds to start questioning me and making this big scene. She's crying. Oh, you know, we miss you and we love you. We've only been in this town for, well, at this point right now, for just about two years. We, and it's all through COVID. We don't know you. And you're saying that you miss us this much and that you love us this much. And you're making this giant scene. And this, yes, it's a, it's a the lobby of a senior's condo, but it's like, I'm on a job here. Right. Right. And you're you're making me late and mm-hmm. you're making this giant scene. Mm-hmm. If anybody here knows who I'm working for, well, now this is going to look bad, you know, and it's mm-hmm. it's just a very frustrating situation to be. Mm-hmm. So I get one round of my tools in. I go to get my other one and I'm coming into the lobby and that sister is literally hiding around the corner because she wanted to get to me again. Mm-hmm. And she was like begging me and trying to coerce me into saying that we would call her and her husband one day to get so that we could get help from them. Those are just a few examples, but I I ended up dealing with a lot of harassment type stuff and lots of issues shortly after I woke up and, and stopped going to meetings and stepped down and everything. And 
it was really odd the way it would work because I'd, I'd come into it with having a lot of depression issues. And so it would happen where like over the course of a weekend or through a week or something like that, I'd have a ton of crap all at once from the witnesses. Weeks, usually like one or two weeks, it'd be quiet and I'd be left alone. It felt like they were planning it because like my, I would get through the depression issue that that event caused just to have another one all over again. Yeah, so it was this like, constant like up and down cycle for months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was getting to be very, very hard to deal with. And I was getting to be very, very angry with it all. Right. I knew I was done and it was Christmas season. And I was like, well, I want to celebrate Christmas to at least to an extent. I, I wasn't putting giant decorations on the front of my house and say, oh, look at me. I'm an apostate now. I had a Christmas tree in the back corner of the living room. It's not like it was right up against the window or anything. So you kind of would have to look in there to see it. So I had my Christmas tree and for a while, you know, I was left alone. It was, a, you know, no one said anything about it, although I was fully expecting it to happen. Like I said, I had other issues coming from them, but no one had talked about this yet. The audacity to have a Christmas tree. I'm <laughs> telling you right now. First of all, you want to spend time with your wife. You have a Christmas tree. I don't know, Spencer. It sounds like. <laughs> It sounds like you're a bit of a troublemaker. No, oh, <laughs> just a heathen here. <laughs> Anyways, um, three weeks ago, roughly, or maybe a month. I'm not exactly sure. My timelines get screwed up quite a bit. Of um, that's a lot. Yeah. But not not that long ago, basically. Mm -hmm. I get this phone call at work from my mom. Because I'd, I'd already sent a letter to my parents telling them, you know, I'm not going to be at meetings anymore and this, that, and the other. It's like, I have a lot of issues, particularly with my mom. But they're at the end of the day, they're still my parents. So I felt like I had to kind of let them know. So I, I let them know and, and my brother as well. So I get this call at work from my mom and the call lasts for like an hour and a half, which really sucked because I'm at work, right? Now I'm tied up and I can't do anything. I'm wasting time at work. Questioning me, asking me about all this. Do you not believe anymore? And all this kind of stuff. So I decided, well, I'm going to just be very honest here. And I said, no, I don't believe that this is the truth anymore. I started using THC and I started, I do have a Christmas tree and all this kind of stuff. Cause it's like, why lie? What's, what's the point? I mean, right. look at the ARC, look at how the governing body members lied and, Hi. and all this different stuff that comes from the organization that causes so much pain. Why would I want to lie about right. my situation? Right. And so that whole conversation, obviously it, it made her very upset about 25 minutes later, roughly. I get a call from the elders in my hall. I didn't answer it because I had already been on the phone long enough and I just wanted to get my work done. But they left me a message saying that they need to talk to me because they want to have a meeting. Well, I knew exactly what that meeting was going to be. I've been in this long enough. I know what it is. We all do. And so I was, I was really debating whether I should call them back or not. Should I just ignore it and skip out on it? What should I do here? So I decided that, okay, I'm going to call, confirm what it is, because there was this there was this other issue I had with this one specific brother that was here. Maybe he happened to call the elders and maybe it was that. No, it was, they wanted to have a judicial meeting with me. Why could I they already, just say that in their message? You know yeah. what I mean? Like, why, why has it got to be this whole vague, like, secret decoder pen type of situation? Like, my jersey's coming out right now. Like, why couldn't they just be like, Listen, we want to meet with you. This is what we have. Like, 
you're a grown man, they're grown men. Like, why so vague in secrecy? It's that's the part that kills me the most. So now you're mentally playing gymnastics in your head, trying to figure out what happened. Did your mom call? Is it about this other situation with this other elder? But no, they just want you to stew about it for a little while while you're at work juggling a new family. Sure. Yep. That's loving. Uh, so <laughs> I get crazy. I, I had suspicions in regards to yes. if mom had called. So I got off the phone with them and I was like, okay, I need to make a decision here because I'm essentially at a point of no return. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not like if I was to go to the meeting, I know that I would walk out of there being disfellowshipped because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be repentant for just simply trying to live my life. Like I walked away. I wanted to live my life peacefully peacefully, and you didn't let me. I'm not going to say that I'm sorry and try and repent and not get disfellowshipped because that's ridiculous, right? But at the same time, it's like, I don't want to be questioned and badgered and harassed any more than I already have been. And if I don't show up to the meeting, well, chances are I'm just going to get disfellowshipped anyways, because that happens a lot. Just read Reddit. Yeah. It happens a lot. So what do I do? Well, I ended up deciding to disassociate for myself. Like I I could not deal with going to the meeting and having all these questions and everything all over again. If I skipped out on it, I'd probably be disfellowshipped anyways. If I went, I would be disfellowshipped. And hypothetically, if I went and I tried to act like I was repentant or whatever, and I didn't get disfellowshipped, well, I'm not going to return to the meetings. I'm not going to go back in service all over again. So what's going to happen? Well, a couple months later, all of it's going to happen all over again. And you're lying to yourself at that point. Yeah. I might as well just disassociate because it's kind of like the only option and the easiest option here for me. They back you into a corner. Exactly. I would rather shoot myself in the foot than be stabbed in the back again. And this, so this was all on a Tuesday night, just one night. Put out my disassociation letter and I sent it into them. Started working on writing the letter to my parents to let them know and to my brother as well. But I mean, my time is limited. It was already getting to be kind of late at that point. And then I have to get up for work the next day. So I was working on it on my breaks and whatnot. Wednesday, like 5 or 30, I get home from work. There's an email from my brother. I haven't been able to send anything out yet. Somehow my brother knows that I was disassociated. Obviously, I don't know because none of them are going to talk to me. But my assumption And I think it's pretty good assumption is that right after I did disassociate, whether it was that same night or the next morning, the elders would have gotten a hold of my parents and told them. And then my parents would have told my brother. I did not have the opportunity to get my letters finished and sent to them. As far as I understand, when you get disfellowshipped and or disassociated, the elders usually give you a a little bit of time to let your family know, because it's not usually like this big planned out thing. It just kind of happens, right? I wasn't given any opportunity to do that. They took it upon themselves to let my family know. I know it applies to being disfellowshipped. Between the time you're getting disfellowshipped and they announce it, you have to tie up any personal loose ends. But as far as disassociating, I don't, I'm not, I haven't experienced that personally, but hopefully people in the comments will be able to share their experiences as to whether or not the minute you disassociate, if they give you that same amount of time before the announcement. That's an interesting question. In your case, obviously, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know for sure that I, mm-hmm. I thought that it was the way that I had said it, but I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Right. But even, even at that, the fact that there was like such a short span of time right. that they had right. to get a hold of my, it's like, where's the humanity there? Where's the empathy? Oh my God. Wow. So I had to write out a letter responding to my brother because it was a very long letter, quite guilt trippy. And he said some things that were very, very harsh. 
and very uncool. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, on one hand, I kind of regret the letter that I sent to him because it was responding in kind to the way he messaged me. But at the same time, it's like, I don't regret it because if this is the way that you're going to treat me after being your brother, your whole life, mm-hmm. you kind of deserve it. If you're going to talk right. to me like that. Right. Good for and you. I sent you're finding a, your own independent, you're finding your strength essentially. And so I sent a letter to my parents as well. And it was probably about seven days or so until I got something back from my parents. It was getting to a point where I was like, okay, they're probably not going to respond at all. Whatever. The letter that they sent to me, I knew reading it that they hadn't even looked at my letter. They just went off of what the elders had said. I didn't respond to it. it again, very guilt trippy. And in a sense, there was like cer- a certain question was still unanswered through all of it. As in, how did, as in like, did mom end up talking to the elders? That got answered for me too. About a week ago from right now, my dad sent me another very short email saying that he finally got around to reading the letter that I sent to him. And he said, oh, if you're going to be mad at anybody, be, don't be mad at the elders there. Be mad at us. We informed the elders because we were concerned. The elders in my phone call with them said that, oh, this couple elders came by and we saw that you had a Christmas tree. As in, yeah, they, they, had, they had been stalking you long before you spoke oh, yeah. to your parents. Yeah. Like I have zero doubts that they, that there was stalking and this, that, and the other coming from them. I, I just had this nagging feeling that mom had, or mom and dad, however that happened to work that they had gotten a hold of the elders and that was proved true. So Mm. essentially like the last interactions that I had got to have with my family, despite like, I've had a lot of issues with my, with my mom specifically, but it's still not the nicest way for things to end. And it was all because of the way that for one, the elders handled things and with my my parents making that call, it just kind of didn't happen on your terms. Yeah. None of this was allowed to be on my own terms. None of it was looking back, looking back on your whole life. None of it was on your terms. Yeah. But uh, like, I wasn't allowed to leave the way I wanted to Mm because someone on, on Reddit had pointed out in the religious bill that there should be an allowance for people to leave quietly and no harm, no foul. The organization doesn't allow for that, at least not when you have position or had position. So I couldn't leave quietly that way. I got harassed and badgered and questioned. And then even when it came to disassociating, it happened because I was backed into a corner. It wasn't fully on my terms in the way that I would have wanted it to be. Telling my family was not on the terms that I would have wanted it to be. So the ending of it all ended up being kind of rough in a way. But as far as where we're at now is concerned, I mean, the job that I had gotten has been the best job I've had in years. No help from Jehovah. I got it on my own. (laughs) Right. I've been getting involved in certain communities online, certain communities around like Norse mythology, for example, because I have a lot of ties to Norway and like the Viking era and stuff through some of my lineage. So I've been getting involved with some of the communities on that, on TikTok, and getting more involved with some of the fitness communities online, and I've been making friends at work. I I even went to the Christmas party at work, and it was a blast. A lot of things are going really good at this point, despite all the roughness that's happened in the last five or six months or whatever it's been. And when it comes to speaking to yourself, maybe about five or six months ago, if there's a new dad, fairly new husband sitting in that audience who's waking up and trying to juggle, not believing it anymore, but at the same time, not living life on his own terms. What would you say to him right now? I would say I've been married for six and a half years. I'm not a veteran, <laughs> but your 
your family should be your priority. You know, you've married this person because you love them. You want to spend your life with them. Make them your priority. The organization isn't going to be there for you. The organization isn't going to help you in the way that's actually practical. Giving meals, sure, is fine. You give a meal. That doesn't give help to any actual practical problems unless you literally don't have food in the house. Make your family your priority because for one, that's what your wife wants. You know, if you've got privileges and you're very busy, your wife wants to spend time with you. Make time to spend with your family and make time to spend with your kids because any of that time that you are spending away from your kids, you do not get that back. That first three three months that I missed out, I'll never get that back. I have an amazing relationship with my son now, but it took a lot of work to get there. If you're in a position where you're waking up, you're PMO, you're stuck, whatever it might be. I mean, I can understand in very certain situations why you might have to stay PMO for a while, but at the very least, don't put your family on the back burner. I did that, not that I wanted to, but I did that for way too many years and it was it's not what you want to do. Dr. Nation really does make us behave in ways that given different circumstances, we wouldn't ordinarily behave. As witnesses, you never live your life for that time. You're living your life for a future time. So you set your goals aside, your personal goals aside. You don't chase that dream job or you don't, you know, go live the life that you want to live. You know, you're living for this future goal. When you realize that none of it's real, well, start living in the now, right? Start living the best life that you can right now. It's like, sure, you got to go to work to pay the bills, but you can still have an enjoyable life. Make the most of it. I know for myself, as my kid gets older, I'm going to encourage him to do whatever it is he wants to do. My goals when I was a teenager was to get married, to buy a piece of land, and to have a trade. Well, I got two of them, but like, I've, I never got to buy a piece of land. I didn't. Most of my 20s feels like it was wasted because I never really did all the things that I wanted to do. Once you wake up and your world is kind of broken, you're going to realize, hey, this is the life that I have. This is my story right now. Write it down. Make it the way you want it to be. This is what I keep telling people. A lot of times you wake up to missed opportunities. You're waking up to a whole life that was Again, like you said, which is beautifully said, by the way, that it was some, for something that's fake and for, for your living in the future, which hasn't even happened yet. So when people live in this mentality of it's just a means to an end, there's no personal growth there. There's no positive change. Waiting to die and living to die is one of the worst ways to, to live in the human experience. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm sure you're going to get feedback. And for those of you watching this, we're going to put Spencer's information and his contact info in the description box. So you can contact him and discuss the shared interest and the shared struggles that we all have. Spencer, we'd love to have you back on at another time. If you'd be willing to see where um, I may do a, where are they now series? I think a lot of people have been asking for that. So I think something that I would love to do, if you'd be interested in that, but for the most part, thank you so much for coming on. You're such an inspiring person. And I know many people's stories. And I know the lives you're going to change are pretty massive in the, in the comment section. I'm glad to hear that. I really wanted to get my story out there to, because the stories on your channel helped me a lot through the last Aww. few months and I wanted to pay it forward. Well, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. I, I do get feedback that 
the moms and the dads and just so many people. I mean, I was impacted by watching other people's stories. So again, thank you so much for coming on here. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, well, we'll see you next time. Yeah, bye. Thank you so much for watching. And if you want to be on the show, don't forget, email me at wendyrenee.gmail.com or go to my website, wendyrenee.com and click on the be on the show tab. The schedule will pop right up and you can get on the show and share your story. Remember, it is sharing our stories that brings us together as a community. And also in our stories, we find each other and in each other, we find ourselves. So thank you so much for being here. That's all for today. And we'll see you next time.